0: Now hear the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Saint Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus said to them, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable. And I sight the Lord my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. There are times when it is tempting to dive into a text and let it mean what we want it to mean or, th- or think it should mean without first looking at its place within its scriptural, within its cultural and historical, and even within its liturgical context. Let us avoid that temptation today. By looking at our gospel reading first in its liturgical setting, then in its scriptural setting, and finally in its cultural historical setting, before we try to understand what this passage has for us as we gather on this day. First, our liturgical setting. Why is this passage selected in the lectionary for this day? As we look at our liturgical calendar, today is the next to last Sunday of our Christian year. This is the Sunday before we celebrate Christ our King and then begin Advent the next week. Next Sunday, we close our year celebrating the glory of Christ in the already of the kingdom of God before moving to our longing in the not yet of the kingdom through Advent. And so this Sunday, we have a glimpse of judgment Later, as we profess our faith using the Nicene Creed, we'll proclaim that Christ will indeed come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and that his kingdom will indeed have no end. Our lessons today, therefore, set before us, before our hearts to consider the judgment that is to come. In our readings, we're reminded that those who run after another god have great trouble. We are reminded of the great difference between the wise and the wicked. We're reminded that indeed it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We're reminded that the righteous live by faith. Liturgically, we might even call this day Judgment Sunday now that we've placed our reading within its liturgical setting, let us look at where this reading, this text, falls within Mark's account of the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. And this is where I have a bit of a bone to pick with our lectionary. The past two weeks, we've had short selections from the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem in those days between his triumphal entry and his betrayal and crucifixion. And in these short passages from the lectionary, we've completely missed the tone and character that leads to this week's reading. So let's take a moment to look at the events that Mark records leading up to our passage today. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to walk very quickly through the events of chapters 11 and 12 in Mark's Gospel. Chapter 11 begins with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, hailed as the promised son of David. Jesus goes then directly to the temple. He looks around and leaves the city. The next morning, as he returns to the city, he curses a fruitless fig tree and then proceeds to the temple where he overturns the table of the money changers and drives out those who sell doves for the sacrifice, proclaiming, Is it not written My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you, you have made it a den of robbers. And that evening, as the disciples are leaving the city, they marvel at the withered leaves of the fig tree that Jesus had cursed that very morning. And Jesus tells them, have faith. And he promises that if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, And if you believe and do not doubt, it will indeed be done. We then see the religious leaders and their various factions coming to challenge Jesus as he teaches in the temple. You see, they seek to conform Jesus to their partisan theologies rather than being transformed by truth. Jesus speaks a parable against these leaders, calling them wicked tenants of the Lord's vineyard, desiring to usurp the authority that rightfully belongs to God alone. That Jesus finds, as he spends his days teaching in the temple, is in the scribe who recognizes that love for God and neighbor is more important than all the empty ritual and external piety on display around him. And the righteousness of the widow who gives everything that she has as an offering, giving from her poverty as those around give from their excess. We might summarize these two chapters in Mark's gospel as the trial and judgment of Jerusalem. Luke indeed describes it in this way. because he tells us of Jesus looking out over Jerusalem and lamenting, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. And now we come to chapter 3 in our gospel passage for today. Jesus and the disciples are leaving Jerusalem for the last time together before the betrayal of Jesus. And they come to the Mount of Olives and looking back on the city, the disciples remark on the beauty and magnificence of the temple structure. They've just spent three days with Jesus observing the spiritual emptiness and fruitlessness of the temple, but they're still awed by its outward appearance. And Jesus says to them, Look closely now, for the day is coming when not one stone will be left upon another. So the disciples ask, When will this be, and what sign shall we look for that this is happening? And the passage we encounter today is an answer these questions about the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple which brings us to the cultural and historical setting of this very passage there are two important cultural historical events that we're likely to miss simply because we're far less familiar with them as 21st century Christians the first is the Maccabean uprising of 167 BC when the Jews under Judas Maccabeus retook the temple after it was desecrated by the Seleucid King Antiochus Epiphanes. And the subsequent cleansing and rededication of the temple is celebrated in the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. Those who heard Jesus talk about the abomination of desecration would immediately recall the brief glory of the Maccabean dynasty that threw out... The desecration of the temple some hundred and eighty, ninety years before. In fact, this uprising was the basis of much of the expectation in the minds of the people for the coming Messiah. And the next major event occurs just a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And likely only a few years before Mark writes his gospel account. In 67 AD, an uprising of Galilean zealots resulted in a Roman punitive campaign and ultimately the siege of Jerusalem. The zealots took control of the temple in violent conflict with their fellow Jews. And they invested as high priest Fanny, a man not of priestly descent and gently described in some sources as a mockery of the priesthood. Other sources are much less gentle. In 70 AD, Jerusalem fell and the temple was indeed utterly destroyed. It is in this light that now we hear Jesus' prophetic words about brother rising against brother in the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not be as a sign of the coming destruction of the temple. So now with this foundation, we can look at our gospel text and see what lesson it may have for us today. Some will look at this passage and see an apocalyptic or eschatological message. That is, they see this passage as pointing at something yet to come, something still in the future, the day in which our Lord will indeed return in glory to establish his a kingdom for eternity. However, this particular passage is much more akin to the prophetic judgments of Isaiah than the apocalyptic visions of Daniel or John or the other apocryphal and literary works of the day. Listen closely to the warning of Jesus about the sign that foretells the destruction of the temple. When you see this, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, flee. Do not run to the fortified city. Do not run to the temple expecting God to help. Do not listen to the false prophets and false messiah who would lead you astray, promising that God will take vengeance on Rome. Instead, see this as what it is. The judgment of God on idolatrous Jerusalem. Rome is the new Babylon, the instrument of God, exacting judgment on the idolatry of Judah. Jesus tells the disciples in this time to pray for mercy. Pray that this will not happen in winter. Pray that the Lord will cut short these days. So what are we to learn from this passage today? Jesus is speaking prophetically about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But like all prophecy, there's a temporal setting and an eternal truth. We can find ourselves in the story of Israel, not because history repeats itself, but because it's the story of humanity, and we are human. We can find ourselves with the disciples on the Mount of Olives because we too are disciples. And so we can find in this passage the eternal truths of the righteous judgment of God, And the willful disobedience of humanity. You know, I don't particularly like to contemplate the judgment of God. And I really don't like to preach on it. Too often preaching about judgment turns into a manipulative turn or burn message. Or a self-degrading assertion of our identity as wretched sinners. To the exclusion of our true identity in Christ as beloved children. So why is it important to consider the righteous judgment of God? First, as we consider the righteous judgment of God, we are reminded that only God is judge because only God is righteous. Yes, we're called to discern good from evil according to his will and his truth and his word, but we are not called to judge nor execute judgment. Second, as we consider the righteous judgment of God, we're reminded of the authority and power of God. Only God can judge because only God has the eternal and almighty authority and power. The temporal authority of governments or churches or sects or any other gathering of people pales in comparison to the authority and power of God. This is the truth to which all disciples are to hold fast in times of trial and persecution. This is the truth that enabled Peter and John to stand before the council in Jerusalem and declare that they will obey God rather than men, even if it costs them their freedom or their lives. This is the truth and power in which we stand through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And finally, it is only as we consider the righteous judgment of God that we can know the abundant mercy of God. See, mercy is only present where there is power. I can't go to the bank and say, now, since I can't pay my debt, I will show you mercy and not pay. I can't say to the policeman, now, I know that I was feeding, but I will show you mercy and decline the ticket. Mercy is only available to those who have power. Only the one who has power over another has the capacity to show mercy. And so, it is as we consider the righteous judgment of God that we come to know the abundant mercy of God as he chooses to call us his beloved so, our passage today calls us to consider the righteous judgment of God and his abundant mercy on us. We're also called to consider the willful disobedience of humanity. We're reminded of those who will twist and contort the truth of God in ways that support their own agendas rather than lead us to the will of God. We're reminded of the ways we resist the call to love and peace and surrender, even in the very presence of God incarnate. We're reminded of the ways that we substitute the doctrines of men for the law of God and seek to make ourselves holy in rites and rituals and rules, rather than accepting the invitation to abide in Christ and he in us. We are reminded of the many ways in which we are tempted to be led astray. And so, as we consider the righteous judgment of God and the willful disobedience of humanity on this next to the last Sunday of our liturgical year, let us hear now the command of Jesus. Be alert. Be alert as you come to this table. Be alert for the presence of Christ. Know his power and authority. Know his mercy and his love for you. Be alert to know the things that make for peace. And be alert. Be alert as we depart this place and go out into the world. Be alert and resist the deceits and deceptions that entice us to seek refuge and security in a lesser authority or power than the Almighty God almighty God that we are privileged to call Father. Be alert to the false claims of those who proclaim healing and wholeness in anything less than the very Son of God. Be alert to the Holy Spirit who gives us strength and wisdom and even the very words that we are to speak when we are tested. I charge you now, Be alert in the name and reputation of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.